Hello and welcome to Living Value, a podcast about living your best life and making the world a better place by living in a way that brings value to yourself and to everyone around you. I'm Topher Field and on each of these podcasts, I'll be interviewing someone who I believe is a true example of living value. They bring value to themselves, their families and friends, to the community at large through how they live and through how they do business. I believe that this is one thing that we can all agree on, that everyone who can should create more value than we consume, build more than we destroy, give more than we take. If every able-bodied and able-minded person on earth focused on creating more value than they consumed in their lifetime, then the world would become a better place at breakneck speed. So you and I may worship different gods, speak different languages, vote for different politicians, or follow different sporting codes, but hopefully we can all agree that our aim should be to create living value with our lives. This is the first ever episode of the Living Value Podcast. So before we get started with today's guest, let's get a little bit more specific. I believe there are three separate areas where we should all create value and value in each of these areas. You can't trade one off against the other. Firstly, financially. Money is one way of tracking and understanding value. It's not the only way, but it is one of the most universal and that makes it important. Our aim as part of the living value ethos is to create more financial value than we consume, i.e. pay your own way. The focus isn't necessarily to get rich. There's no prize for dying as a billionaire, but we should all strive to pay for our own funeral at least. If your last dollar goes on putting you into the ground, then well done. You were not a financial burden to the world around you. You created more than you consumed. You made the world a better place financially, and that is the first goal. The second goal is in relationships. Be someone who builds community rather than tears it down. Someone who supports others rather than sapping them dry. Aim to be a better father, mother, husband, wife, or crazy cat lady, whatever floats your boat. Aim to be better than your parents were. That's not to say that you always have to be the one giving. That's not to say that you always have to be the one who's strong. None of us can do that nonstop for our whole lives. You will have times in your life when you're the one depending on others to help you get through, and that's okay. Your community is there, or at least should be there for you when you need it, but you have a responsibility to then help build that community back up so that they can be there for others as well. The third area is in ideas. Ideas are the most powerful force that you will ever have at your disposal. But whether your ideas are a force for good or for evil depends on which ideas you adopt and which ideas you share with others and help them to understand. So how do we know which ideas are which? Well, I bring it back to the premise of this podcast, living value. There are ideas that create value and make the world a better, more prosperous, happier place. And there are ideas that destroy value, make the world poorer, more miserable, and harder to live in. And so we see that ideas have consequences, more so even than what you do with your money, or even what you do in terms of building community. What you do with your ideas will leave a mark on the world long after you're dead. And you have a responsibility to hold to and promote ideas that create value rather than destroying it. So these are the three areas of living value that this podcast is focused on. Finances, community, and ideas. I believe that everyone who can has a responsibility to create more than we destroy in each of these three areas. In this podcast, I interview people who I believe are doing exactly that. People who are running their own businesses, big or small, creating financial value for their families, but also building community and making the world a better place. And this podcast is designed to help them share their ideas with you and with me so that we can all learn and all make the world a better place. It's almost time for me to introduce my first guest for the Living Value Podcast. But before I do, if you like what you're hearing and you want to help me keep going, please support me as I create the Living Value Podcast by going to my locals community. Locals is like Patreon, but without the political correctness and deplatforming. Go to tofafield.locals.com, join the Tofafield Locals community, and help me to create more content like this. Finally, and without any further ado, let me introduce my first ever guest for the Living Value Podcast. His name is Jay Villa Gonzalo, and I had the privilege of meeting him back in 2012. Now, Jay is one of those really frustrating people who just seems to have it together. It's just infuriating. He's, he's intelligent. He's well-spoken. He's very good-looking. If you don't believe me, 
go to his dance school someday and you'll understand what I'm talking about. He's got a fantastic family, both the family that he grew up in and now also the family that he is a husband and father in. He's got it all, which is infuriating. So frustrating. But he's also worked extremely hard. He's studied, he's learned from others and he's applied what he's learned and he's taken some risks along the way. And in my opinion, he's someone that we all, myself included, have a lot that we can learn from. And he is bringing tremendous value in all three of those areas that we've discussed, financially, in relationships, and in ideas. He's bringing tremendous value to the world. And I've got him on this podcast to share that value with us. Jay, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Pleasure to be here. Excited. Mate, your story is a really fascinating one to me, not only because of what you've done, the community that you've built, the business that you've built, uh, the family that you've, that you've built at the same time, but actually getting to know you a little bit over the years, understanding how much you've actually changed as an individual from who you were. I'm going to say pre-Salsa Foundation. I don't, you can fill me in on, on what caused what things to change, but the way you talk about who you were prior to the Salsa Foundation is very different to who you are now. So let's, let's wind all the way back to the very beginning who were you before Salsa and the Salsa Foundation kind of changed you? Right. Well, I think maybe the best place to start would be from the beginning of adult life. I, uh, I was one of that. these kids who kind of one of these teenage kids who kind of cruised through everything. Um, everything sort of seemed to fall into place. I mean, I came from an amazing supportive family, uh, really raised in, a, in an environment where I had a huge family support network and, and the church support network and all that kind of stuff as well. And uh, most things I tried, I had a natural knack for and I picked it up very quickly. Um, and I sort of, I was very spoilt individually as well because I've got four sisters. So it's just, I'm, I was the only boy, I was the golden <laughs> boy. Um, could do no wrong. Um, and so, yeah, well, just being in that environment um, gave me sort of the ability to and the freedom to try things. Mm. I never sort of felt pressured to do anything in particular. Um, my parents were amazing that way. Uh, they were really supportive of anything that I wanted to attempt. And so uh, end of year 12, I had no idea what I really wanted to go into um, because the downside of, of picking things up naturally in many different areas is that I'm not forced into one particular area. It's the, the tyranny so, of too much choice can sometimes be quite a challenge. Yeah. It's kind of ironic like that. So a lot of the times you don't think that that happens, but it's, it's kind of like you hit the end of year 12 and then suddenly you're thrust into this position of like, okay, now quickly make a decision of what you want to do for the rest of your life or at least <laughs> the next 10 years. Mm. And so I had no idea. So I um, dropped myself into uh, the most cushiest course that I could find, which was a tourism degree, mm -hmm. um, which I knew nothing about what that was. But um, I thought, well, I like the idea of traveling. So I'll find out a little bit about the industry. And actually turns out that tourism degree was actually very useful because in the first two years, they take you through basically multiple different aspects of running a business, whether it's marketing, accounting, uh, public speaking, lots of different things. And, and like, even like, the, you know, computer programming and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's really bizarre because it's a, it's a really eclectic mix of different topics to cover. You need a wide ranging and, um, skill set. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it just it was just fortuitous because it allowed me to sort of sample lots of different industries without actually committing to one. Um, and then ironically, again, I actually chose none of the above and <laughs> I got into, I got into fitness. So I, um, I was really, uh, into the gym at that time. And, and a friend of mine asked if I wanted to start doing some personal training. And that now that hadn't off. been the case for you prior to that. That was very much a change for you. I, I do remember overhearing you describing your past life to somebody at the Salsa Foundation as being sort of the classic skinny, weedy, uh, if you don't mind me saying Asian <laughs> kid, uh, that, that you might have stereotypes of. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Just, um, just, uh, just. I looked underfed. I think somebody <laughs> tried to sponsor me once. And um, <laughs> and for those for those of you listening who who uh, haven't seen Jay, which is obviously going to be most of you, if you head along to the Salsa Foundation once they're open again and you see what he looks like today, you'll understand why that's just so incredibly funny. 
yeah, actually, uh, my parents dragged the whole family over to the Philippines when I was 17. And I did my year 11 in, in the Philippines. Mm. And it was, uh, I did homeschooling. Right. Which means that I got all of my school work done in the first three hours of the day. Mm-hmm. And then I was free to pursue anything I wanted. And I spent two hours a day in the gym. And that's where sort of my... <laughs> that's uh, where it happened. That's where my passion for fitness sort of came about. Now, I didn't actually so know that you'd been... Mine, sorry, I didn't know that you'd been homeschooled at all. I'm, I'm not sure if you know that I was actually homeschooled for most of my education from the second half of primary school all the way through. I never went back. Yeah, I remember you, you mentioned that. Yeah, so yeah. that's that's interesting. It, it it is an interesting experience, and I, I tend to find that people who have homeschooled, or or if not homeschooled, ha- had a heavily self directed um, education, do tend to be very good at the generalist challenges of life, the, the being spread across multiple um, fronts, which I think is a, a good description for how you've kind of been able to build the business, which we'll, we'll get to in a moment. But anyway, I'm sorry, I cut you off. I actually I hadn't thought of that. Actually, mm. it was actually. Again, well, one of these fortuitous things that just turned out that way. Uh, although I suppose everybody's sort of going through that now, right? Well, that's exactly right. I've, I've got a four-year-old that I literally sat him down today and I bought a few books for, for handwriting and um, numbers adding and subtracting and so forth. And literally today was actually his very first ever day of school, which of course was homeschooling because that's what everyone's doing. Yeah, yeah. So um, at the time, when I, if, if I go back to the fitness journey, a friend of mine, who I was actually my training partner, he uh, asked if I wanted to start doing some personal training and mm. I had zero qualifications whatsoever, <laughs> but I loved fitness and people seemed to always ask me for advice in the gym. So I started doing that. I and, think if you're um, getting results in the gym, you can't help but have people walk up to you. Well, that seems to be the thing. I don't, I don't know. People just interrupted me during my work. I had to start <laughs> wearing earphones with no music playing. Uh, yeah. Um, and then sort of we just decided to take a plunge and open our own personal training studio. Now, back then, this is quite a few years ago, there weren't many boutique personal training studios. Mm. So we, um, we opened up our first one in St. Kilda mm-hmm. at the time. And we were actually training a lot of um, corporate types, CEOs and all yeah, that right. type of stuff. And um, we, we did really well because we were one of the first in that area at the time. And uh, we actually opened up two and a half locations. I want to say two and a half locations. <laughs> so <laughs> half a location because we shared a space with another personal training Fair company. Enough. But we had, we had two and a half locations and um, it grew. It really, it, uh, I don't even know how. It just, people just started coming in. But then um, I sort of grew tired of the 5 a.m. starts. Mm-hmm. Um, personal trainers run kind of weird hours and also at the time i noticed that they had just released uh online personal training courses yeah so you could right. do them remotely yeah and i kind of sort of put two and two together and i was like okay well there's going to be a like an influx of new yeah, you saw the personal the trainers world. exactly so i was like okay this they've lowered the bar to entry into the industry and so I sort of saw maybe a couple of years down the track, we're going to have an uphill battle. So I told my partner, look, I'm, I'm looking at maybe getting out. I said, uh, I explained all my reasons. He decided to stay in. So he bought me out, mm-hmm. which um, afforded me some leisure time to just do a few things. Yeah, fair and, enough. And um, so I, I started playing around with some stuff on the internet. Um, and I got this idea. So this is really funny because I, I got this idea to do like a, a social media agency okay. for models wanting okay. to get sponsorship from companies, mm-hmm. right? So this is way back. So this is before social influences was a thing. Yeah. So yep. what I did was I, was I sort of searched uh, good-looking people mm-hmm. with this X amount of friends, and I actually had this, this um, folder on my computer of people's <laughs> photos, and, and I think... And then I just messaged him and I said, hey, um, like, so I called the company Vane, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. V-A-I and Vane. Yeah, and so yeah. that, worked, that worked really well. Uh-huh. And um, at the time that I stopped doing that, I think I had like 240 models were That's part insane. of the project. Um, and so we had um, some companies coming on board with sponsorships and stuff like that. Um, 
And so how were these people of benefit to the companies? We all understand how influencers work today. At that time, how were your models bringing value to those brands? So the metrics that we were sort of plugging to those brands were just likes because that was pretty much what they were. I don't don't even know if there was any analytics behind it. Is this MySpace days? No, this is, this is early Facebook days. Early Facebook. Right. Okay. All right. Yeah. Amazing. So it was like, look, we can't, we can't give you a metrics on your ROI, but this is just, it was literally like the first thing that I, I heard of, of like just experimenting with social influences. Okay. Um, so, so obviously, um, you know, just putting on my, my brain from that many years ago, uh, I'm thinking single guy, you just want to hang out with models. This is a really great excuse to, uh, to do exactly that. <laughs> Um, but I'm going to move yes. on. I'm going to move on immediately from that thought. So <laughs> you, you, you've studied, you've studied tourism. You then run uh, a successful gym. Uh, and I think you picked mm-hmm. a good moment to get out. And, uh, and one of the realities of modern life is that we actually are all going to have to retrain and change industries multiple times over our lives. And that was kind of mm-hmm. the first one for you, I, I guess. You've then gone into really sort of being one of the pioneers of a new market segment that has now become absolutely massive. But then somehow you ended up as Jay, the dance teacher. What the hell happened? <laughs> well, look, if I look back on that time with that social, social influencers thing, I'm like, I should have kept going for a few more years because it really <laughs> did explode. Oh, yeah. Like once Instagram came on the scene and I was like, I should have kept going because I really had a good foothold going, but I kind of just got bored. And also, I, I guess I didn't have the foresight of seeing how to monetize that model. Yeah. So uh, I was like, look, I'm sick of the party scene. I'm sick of, <laughs> you know, so-and-so. And so I thought, you know, I need to give that a break. Um, and so I went back into the corporate world. Okay. And um, I uh, actually took up a job at, uh, I can't remember if it was Telstra or Optus first, one of the telcos. And um, it was just doing some, uh order fulfillment or something, corporate fulfillment. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so I attended the training session and it was they, they make it really fun at the training sessions, right? But then after <laughs> the two weeks of training, it's like boring ass. Yeah. But then I thought, hang on, the training was fun. How do I get involved in the training side of things? Mm. So uh, after about a month, an opportunity for a secondment came up and they said they're looking for trainee trainers to, um, to train up to, to be, become corporate workplace trainers. And so I put my hand up for that and um, no qualification whatsoever. There seems to be um, a theme No here. experience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, actually, yeah, yeah. And so <laughs> they, there was like an uh, audition process. It was kind of like an audition process where you had to um, teach something to the group that they didn't know. Mm. And it had to be something that you don't know. So Uh I decided to teach them how to speak Italian, which I don't know how to speak, Um, but I just made a really, I can't even remember the details, but I I just made a really sort of um, jokey, fun type thing. And they really liked the presentation of it. And so they gave me the last slot. So there was four secondment slots Mm -hmm. in the last slot, um, which was good because it was a, it was a triple the pay of the job that I was doing at the time. And it was much more fun. But I really flew by the seat of my pants. I had no idea what I was doing. I would actually, <laughs> I actually learned the teaching material half an hour prior to the day starting. Mm. And then I'd teach it out of the book, basically, and just it, rely on entertaining the group. It's a high-stress way to live. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, that's why I really, I really just had to turn on the you know, entertainment mm. side of things. Yeah. And so uh, that sort of gave me a little bit of a glimpse into the teaching side of things, which I would use later on, um, so, which again, fortuitous. Fast forward a little bit. Um, you ended up the very first Salsa Foundation classes, if my memory serves me correctly, were outdoors in a park. Take me through that journey. I, uh, while I was working there at the workplace training, I, um, I got dragged out to a latin night by a friend of mine and he didn't tell me where we were going he just brought and, me there and, and he'd been the, dancing already for for the record year. non-dancing guys are only ever dragged along to these things we never go willingly <laughs> once yes, you're a dancing exactly. guy you'll be you'll be hunting them down you'll be looking for them but until that happens <laughs> you get dragged 
I had to get tricked into it. I thought I was going to a like a Latin restaurant. Oh no! Eat. Oh, um, and so <laughs> I turned up. There was a live band. Anyway, um, that that sort of got me started into dancing. I I just I was hooked when I saw it. All the mm. movement, all the mm-hmm. all the music, and I was terrible, horrible at it. <laughs> um, but but a, a girl, a particular girl, sort of um, took me under her wing and decided to mentor me into uh, the scene. Um, she she saw that the potential. I, so something. I Maybe she just saw evidence. the abs. Who knows? But she saw something. <laughs> right. So I uh, I met a a girl at the time who was one of the best salsa dancers in Australia, mm. and I uh, started dating her. And uh, at the time, she was just bouncing around from school to school, teaching whatever she could pick up. Mm-hmm. And I um I suggested to her she start her own school or mm. we start a school for her. Um, and uh, that's when we decided to do it. We decided to go ahead and do it. And um, we didn't have any people mm-hmm. and there was no sort of Facebook ads didn't really exist back then the way we knew it or Google ads and knew nothing about it. So I'm like, how do we fill the first class? Mm. And so I went to my workplace and I said to them, guys, we're going to do a free class. Everyone's going to come along. She's amazing instructor. We're going to teach you guys how to dance salsa. Nice. Um, and so that's how our first class, we didn't have a venue. So we went to the Flagstaff Gardens, which is the closest <laughs> park to our office on the Telstra building. And how many and, people uh, showed up to that? We had four. And um, one, of them was, one of them was my mate, George, who I told <laughs> yes. to pretend that he didn't know how to dance. Oh. He was uh, one of my dancing friends. So, so you, he had to come and make up the numbers. You had four people and 25% of them were rent a crowd. <laughs> exactly but yeah. hey as, as the bible says you mentioned before your, your church background uh don't despise the day of small beginnings that uh, that was a small <laughs> beginning but am i correct in saying that now the salsa foundation in terms of just the number of different people that have come through and and taken classes with you you are hands down the largest dance school in australia if not the world i i, I don't i'm not confident saying that but you'd have to be close in terms of uh yeah, yeah, actually, you know what? We've had 60,000 come through the beginners yeah. class and we average about, now we are, nowadays, well, pre-COVID, yep. we average about 1,000 a week, 1,000 yep. students a week. So, yeah, just um, absolutely yeah. incredible. So that was a decision to start the school. Did you have any inkling at the time what it would lead to? And if not, what did you think this was? Was this a little side thing? Was it an entertaining thing for your girlfriend to do? What was it in your mind at the time? It was for her to um, to get away from teaching from for other people, um, but then we broke up, and at that time when we broke up, I sort of had a decision to make of whether I just kill it or try and keep running it. Because it and was it was kind time, of your school, wasn't it? You were you were administrating it. It was kind of your thing. She just taught there. Well, it depends how you look at it. Like right. she was the face of it. She was teaching all the classes. Yeah, fair I enough. I was um, running the back, the back end of it and doing the behind the scenes stuff. Yeah. So it depends on how you see it. So um, I had never taught a class at that time that mm. she left. And so I had a big decision to make. And I was like, well, I'm going to have to learn everything on the fly while running it. Mm. So do I really want to do this? Plus, you know, our community that we'd grown then, and I want to say like at the time we'd grown it to about a community of about 50 students. Yeah. Um, which is about the typical size of a school nowadays. Um, most of these schools around have about yeah. that many students. So it yeah. was a, it was a proper school. Um, and uh, most of those students saw her as the base of the business. She was, it was her school basically. And so, so for me to take over it would have been, I'd have to win them over. Were, were you still working at that time? Did you still have that, that other job? Uh, no. So I had had some other investments um, that I was involved in, which did really well. Okay. And also, yeah, just property stuff and, and a couple of other businesses that I'd invested in um, okay. through contacts, actually through contacts through the previous businesses that I've been in. So, so that, that sort of afforded me not having to work. I was going to say that that probably makes it just a little bit easier for you to take that risk and, and see if you can keep it going. But 
on the other hand, if you started it for your girlfriend, what's the upside to keeping it going at, at that point in time? If you can cast your mind back that many years, what was it that made you keep it going? Um, look, to be honest, uh, I think it was a case of a little bit of personal pride. Mm-hmm. I think it was a case of um, maybe taking on a challenge for myself. Yeah. Uh, if I track back all through the years again, like it's just hard for me to pinpoint a time where I really faced a challenge. Mm. And this is why, like, I think sometimes if I, you know, when I were, I do interviews, job interviews, they'd be like, they'd, they'd ask me like, <laughs> can you name a weakness? And I'd be like, okay, well maybe one of the weaknesses I haven't really faced a failure or an adversity yet. Yeah. And yeah. Um, I sort of had the, at least the common sense to look at it that way as not as in like I'm invincible or anything yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, but so at the time when that came along, I thought maybe it's a challenge that I'd like to try. Mm. Um, but yeah, look, it, it, I definitely, I, I pretty much had to dismantle the whole school and start from scratch. So essentially, okay. even though I kept the name, which funnily enough, doesn't really sound like a dance school <laughs> other than the <laughs> fact that it has the word salsa in it. Yeah, fair enough. Um, look, it could be about yeah. chips and dips. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the salsa exactly. foundation, you know, it's... Uh, <laughs> So do you remember what year that was when you kind of made that decision to take it on and say, right, this is now my school and I'm going to learn how to teach? That was uh, 2010. 2010. So we, we started at the end of 2009. So yeah, right. it's about a year, yeah, a little bit over a year. And so I think it was in yeah. about the third year of the school that I walked in for the first time. I think, you'd, I think I was there just in time for the third birthday party. So that'd be probably 2012 sometime. Wow. Um, And I I want to change tack a little bit here. And I I want to talk just for a moment about that experience of walking in, because I think it's going to be really useful for listeners to get that sort of the other eye view of what it was that you'd created by that point in time. So the whole, I'm not a dancer. I'd never been a dancer. I didn't just think of myself as someone who didn't dance. I thought of myself as a non-dancer. I I actively avoid dancing. But at the time I was studying acting, um, you know, speaking of things that we, that we dabble in and then, and then go, ah, no, no, thanks. Uh, I was studying acting full time at a, at a screen acting school in South Melbourne. And my agent was very big on the idea that you had to never say no to a casting agent. If you're in a casting and you're going for a role and there's you and 20 other blokes and at least half of them are going to be better looking and some of them are going to be better actors and each one of them is going to have their own edge and their own advantage and we're all competing. There's only one role to get, right? If the casting director says to you, can you ride a horse? The answer is yes. Can you swim? Yes. Can you do stunts? Yes. Can you dance? Yes. The answer had to be yes. And then you'd go out and figure out how to do it, right? <laughs> and so he said this to me. And, and the thing that terrified me the most out of all of that was, was dancing. The, the idea that I would have to coordinate my feet and actually do like dancey stuff was, was terrifying. So I then went online to find a school and learn some kind of dancing just to kind of get over that fear and get to the point where I could look at a casting director in the eye and say yes and actually have some hope of being able to learn whatever it was that they wanted me to learn. I settled on salsa because it was danced quite a lot socially. So I thought it'd be a bit more useful than say ballroom, which is danced more competitively or other styles of dance that just didn't sort of appeal to me. And I went online and I found that there was this dance school right in the heart of Melbourne in the CBD, not far from where I was studying. And one Tuesday night, I showed up to their free beginners class. I mean, hey, you know, it's, it's free. So of course I'm going to walk in. I did not expect what I walked into. My, my perception of dance schools and particularly the Latin scene, because it does have kind of a sleazy sort of uh, undertone to it in many places. And I, and I would say that that is still the case in many places. And, and the Salsa Foundation is actually a bit of an exception to that. But I walked in and found some of the friendliest, happiest, most non-judgmental, you know, they allowed me to be, uh, to be the beginner that I was. And sat, yeah, so I signed in, sat down, waited for the class to begin out you came, you started doing the teaching and it was just fun and it was hilarious and your jokes were fantastic and I had an absolute ball. Of course, I've, I learned since then that it's the same jokes every single time, um, <laughs> but they were very, very funny. But what absolutely just stood out to me was the atmosphere and the community that you had actually created, even at that point, only a few years in, was, was genuinely something that I've not seen before or since in any other context like that it's just it's just a really unique and quite a special place so what i want to ask you about is this community 
obviously a dance school is always going to have some sense of community. That's, you know, you're all kind of training together, you're working together. That's going to bring that shared experience that brings that sense of community. What decisions did you make along the way to actively build that community? Well, look, from, I guess, from the birthplace of the dance school, one of the things we set out to do, and this was, this was a stated goal for us when we first started out, we're like, we want to do as many things as we can the opposite of what all the other dance schools do. Okay. Um, I've always subscribed to this kind of theory of like, if you're going to do the same as everyone else, then what's the point of entering the marketplace? And what's the point of entering sure. the game if you're going to be the same as everyone else? Sure. Um, but not, a, not only that, there was just um, this, something didn't make sense to me about the dance scene. We have a, a dance scene, which is quite small um, relative to the population of people who would be eligible to be in that demographic to yeah. dance. Yeah. And if you list all of the benefits of dancing, you, it just doesn't weigh up. It's like, if there's so many benefits, then why is there so few people? Mm. And, um, ultimately it can be traced back to how the industry and the scene is run the politics behind the scenes, the way that things are communicated and all that kind of stuff. And, and I genuinely believe that that's what was limiting the growth mm. of the entire industry. So uh, I listed out, I described, we went to several different classes. I, I've, I've went to every dance school that existed in Melbourne at the time. And I took my notes as to how they did it with the expressed sort of <laughs> intent of doing as many things different. The opposite way. Opposite. Exactly right. So it's kind of like that Seinfeld episode where George decides to do the opposite of everything he always does yeah, because his life sucks and he does the opposite <laughs> and everything improves. Yep. So it's kind of like that. And so expressly different from everyone else is what we wanted to try and do. And um, the thing that kept coming back to me was that uh, all the schools that I went to sort of had this exclusivity about them. Mm. And I realized that if you, if you actually think about exclusive, it sounds very attractive for people, but if you actually break down what the word means, it means that you're literally excluding yeah. people. Yeah. yeah. And by doing that, you actually are limiting the growth of a community. So while dance schools do have their own community, usually it's an enclosed community. Mm. It's not an open, welcoming community. So they're not expressly or they're not intentionally trying to grow as a community. Mm. They're just trying to exist as a community among themselves. So um, when I look back on it, and what, like this is actually something that I think about on a regular basis. I was like, how do we grow a community? I mean, there's all the intangible stuff, like, as you said, being friendly, being accepting, being welcoming, but then you have to create systems around that, that encourages that out of people. Uh, because I, I believe that people are, are naturally inclusive. Mm -hmm. You train them to be exclusive by nature. Like there's not by nature. I believe that, especially in a social environment, um, you just have to unlock it and you just have to let people be inclusive. Mm. Um, and so one of the things that we did from a technical standpoint was really try to use different language as we teaching the class, um, less technical language, more. That's why you hear us telling stories and analogies mm. a lot more than the average school does. Mm -hmm. um, most people use technical language because it makes them look more uh, sophisticated yeah. makes them look more knowledgeable. If for anyone who's who, who go, for anyone who goes along and does your beginners class, you will never look at making pancakes the same way ever again. <laughs> the stories, <laughs> the stories are an <laughs> the, the, the stories are an absolute highlight, and uh, and really, really, you're absolutely right. Uh, it does actually make it more welcoming. It's it's a way of really simplifying language without people feeling like you're actually dumbing it down for them that you've just made it more fun instead of, instead of dumbed down. One of the other things that you did though, and I really benefited from this, and this is, this is one of the things that I'm super grateful for to you and, and to the Salsa Foundation, is you actually made a place for other people in the community and gave them a structure within which they could contribute back to the community and kind of be rewarded for that in the form of, of sort of free lessons and things like that. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I, I'm of the view, having sort of experienced it as one of the people that walked through the front door, that this is really one of the keys to the success. So we try and do that in multiple different areas of the community. So even, mm. even our staff program, our crew program, um, and then from each level and how they relate to 
each other level. So mm. from a beginner to an intermediate, and intermediate to advanced. Um, and one of the keys to doing this is that we sort of flip the model a little bit because in most environments, they champion the level above mm. where what we wanted to try to do was to champion the level below. So we wanted to explain to, we wanted to raise them in a way that they understand that the next generation is the key to the entire thing existing. Yeah. If that makes sense. Because it's kind of like, it's kind of like how you go through life. So the, as a child, obviously you're just dependent on anyone above you to Mm. look after you. As an adolescent, you're kind of just, it's all about you, you, you. And as you grow into an adult and have your own children, then you realize the most important thing in the world is your children. Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of that way. We sort of want to raise our, our advanced people all along, believing that the beginners are the most important thing. Cause that's essentially uh, like t- taking a step back and looking at the entire industry. Mm. They are literally the lifeblood of the industry without Absolutely. all beginners coming in, new blood coming in. There's no people at the events without the mm. events. There's no social dancing without that. There's no people in classes, everything. And all the teachers without that, the teachers don't get paid mm-hmm. and they have to work day jobs and just teach as a passion project. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's, the thing everybody has it reversed and a lot of times they champion okay the teacher is the god everything's mm-hmm. about the teacher and and then it's just, it's just backwards it just feeds the mm. wrong way so the salsa foundation as we touched on earlier has probably has the claim to being the biggest dancing school that has ever existed in the known universe uh we can't say that for <laughs> sure but but it would be up there but along the way, obviously, many, many years since 2009, when you started, that's been 11 years now. What would you consider to be one of the most important and best decisions that you made? And that might be a decision about how you've structured things or a decision about personnel, or it might be a decision about yourself and self-improvement to build the business. What do you think is one of the most important decisions that you made that has contributed to the success of the Salsa Foundation? Um, the last thing I mentioned earlier about flipping the model on its head, I think was really, really key. Mm. Um, but from a personal standpoint, something that I had to sacrifice myself was uh, the pursuit of the artist side of things. Right. Um, as a dancer, it's very tempting to, you know, I could have spent most of my hours developing myself as a dancer and becoming a world champion mm. or an Australian champion or mm. whatever like that. And um, instead, I spent most of my time researching how do I become a better teacher? How do I run a better community? How do I? And so a decision like that was very hard, especially when when I'm in environments with my peers and they're asking me, why aren't you competing? Yeah. And most people just assume you're not competing because you're not good enough. You're too scared to compete. Yeah. And uh, it was just like... It wasn't hard for me not to say that because in the back of my mind, I'm thinking that's fine. You guys keep doing that because mm. while you're doing that, I'm doing this and I'm, I'm getting ahead in this area, which yeah. I, which I know is more important when it comes to running a dance school. Mm. Um, and so that, that was a big sacrifice for me at the time. And, and it sort of just took a bit of swallowing my pride a little mm-hmm. bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and also just recognizing cause this is, it is crucial. This is something that really stuck with me. I can't even remember who said it to me first, but when you're a teacher, it's, it's all about your student. When you're mm-hmm. an artist, it's all about yourself. But when you're a teacher, <laughs> it's all about your student. Yeah. So you have to choose which one you're going to be. doesn't mean you can never be the other one, mm. but it just means that when you're going in one direction, you're moving further away from the other direction. You need to, you need to understand that and choose mm. when you do that. Mm. So that was definitely key in, in building what it would become. Uh, but there was definitely, I, I definitely relied a lot on the people around me. So the biggest contributing factor would be empowering the people who I brought on to be their, the personalities, their own personalities, mm. you know, cause it would have been easy for me just to cater everything around myself yeah. and just, have everyone as a bit player, yeah. But I wanted like each teacher to have a different character. So we we have Soren, who's an authoritarian type of dude. We have Willow, who's like a, <laughs> who's like a kindergarten teacher. We have you know yourself, who's who's look you know deep deep voices like uh, very 
like you just sound knowledgeable on anything you talk about you know what i mean it's it, it's all the facade like mother and 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 for the record i'm i'm a long retired teacher now it's uh, it's been a number of years since i've been able to come along unfortunately because i moved actually uh, i now live nearly 50 kilometers away and it's just too far to drive um i want to flip the question on its head though now and say is has there been along the way something where you headed off in the wrong direction you made some sort of a mistake something that you had to undo recover from along the way what would be the biggest mistake that you think you might have made at some point um look now that i've said what i just said mm-hmm. um i did sort of there was a period there where i really tried to um cater the class to students who had been with us for a while um it became this sort of a balancing act where you kind of stretch yourself because you're you're looking after for example in, in my case i'm looking after students who are just starting mm-hmm. But then I've had these students who have been with me for years mm. and I want to keep those students because I have a personal attachment to them and I want to cater to them as well. But the kind of, again, the analogy is kind of like you're, you're holding onto one branch and trying to reach for another branch. You kind of have to let go of one branch to hold the other branch. If mm. that makes sense. Mm. Otherwise you hold neither of them. Um, it's kind of, yeah, yeah, actually that's what it is. So I sat down with a mentor many, many years before I started dancing and he was actually the creator of an entrepreneur magazine. I think it was, I can't even remember what it was called. It was an entrepreneur magazine. It was called Entrepreneur or something like that, right? Mm. Um, and he, he actually, he, I actually just asked him for a coffee and I sat down with him and I was just, I was just like a 17-year-old kid. Mm. And I said, give me some advice. And he just said, if you chase two rabbits, you catch none. Yes. Right? <laughs> so true. Yes. <laughs> At the time, sort of my mistake was I, I was like, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sort of, I guess I let that professional pride, that ego come into mm-hmm. it a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I, I think I can do everything. And um, you just, nobody can. No. Nobody can. No, no. So I'm yeah, guessing and that's given, where I started to feel burned out. Yeah. I'm guessing sure. given what you, you sort of said, you, when you realized you had to let go of one of those branches, the, the branch you held onto was those beginners and, and bringing the new people into the community. Yeah. Absolutely. Which, which I can only imagine is, is very, very difficult because I, I do know how much you invest into your students and, and you do, you get attached over time. And uh, yeah, that I can only imagine that would have been a, a challenging decision. Now, mm-hmm. I want to pivot a little bit now and, and talk a little bit about family and community, not just within the school, but also more broadly, because you're, you're married to a beautiful wife and you've got two, two I believe, two beautiful boys now, um, if my yes. memory serves me correctly. And I, I'm going yes. to claim a, a little bit of credit here because I think you and uh, and Diane actually first got together at a dance party that I held at my house. I, yes. if, my, if my memory yes. serves me correctly, um, and I won't yes, I won't talk true. about how I know that. Um, but no, that was um, and, and seeing that happen. Obviously, I, I had the joy of kind of watching that from the sidelines and and seeing sort of the beginning of what is now a, a fantastic, beautiful family. But. You're, you're, you've mentioned your parents and, and that they've been fantastic parents to you. I'll mention that your dad is also involved at a local political level, uh, trying to make the world a better place uh, in that way. And at that level, you're obviously growing your family, continuing to build the community. Uh, I don't know if you're still involved in the church or not, but tell me a little bit about sort of family life and particularly how you've managed to have a family, build a family, stay connected to these other communities outside of the Salsa Foundation, whilst also building a business that does require a huge investment of time and emotional energy. How do you balance those two? Uh, well, look, I'm going to be honest. Like a, a lot of the community stuff that we are involved with has in some shape or form has some relation to what we do with dancing. Mm. And uh, it's just lucky for us because a lot of, external communities that normally don't have anything to do with dancing are attracted to the dancing aspect just as a leisure thing. So oftentimes we're able to cross communities that way. We're able to get involved with it. For example, the local community or the church through Mm. dancing. Mm. So they'll connect with us on that level. And we're able to still be involved with many other communities by bringing our community to their community. Mm -hmm. Um, From a family standpoint, um, we are a big family. Mm-hmm. Uh, just recently, we've literally moved into the house next door to my parents' place where I grew up. Um, we, we've taken that place. 
So we are wow. geographically very, very close to family. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, because we have classes in the evenings, most evenings during the week, or well, pre-COVID, most evenings during the week, the kids will be with either my parents or with Diane's mum. Mm-hmm. And so we saw them multiple times a week. Um, and it's just been like, obviously that works you know, in more ways than one, that's, that's mm. really beneficial. We wouldn't be able to run our business without the support of the family. Well, that's, that's what I was about um, to say. This has just been amazing. For those listening who obviously aren't familiar with the schedule, uh, as a dance teacher, you have to be available when everyone else has their downtime, has their leisure time, exactly. at, at a time when they can go and do the fun thing. That's when you're actually working. Uh, a little bit like people who work in bars or hospitality, these sorts of things. You are in demand in the evening, you're in demand on weekends, uh, and you're in demand in, in far more ways than just show up and teach. You're also choreographing um, some of your, your classes and groups that do actual dance performances and things like that. You're also in demand, if I may say so, uh, for things like hen's nights uh, and no it's not what you think uh it's not what you think uh, but just as a, as an entertainer uh for hen's nights good fun you know doing sort of dance classes for for the girls um to have heaps of fun on those nights and all of those things happen in the hours where you know the rest of us working normal jobs we're spending that time with our family that is the time that we get to spend with our family so how do you balance this competition for your time and and when where, where have you carved out family time so we used to be involved in the business seven days a week. Mm. Uh, we had to deliberately cut out at least two and a half days of that week. Out. So the way I figured it was, look, most people work a nine to five. Mm-hmm. Then they have the evenings and they have the weekends with their family. Mm. For us, it was like, we, we, as you said, we work the reverse hours. So we have to carve out days in a different way. So for us, it's a Friday and a Saturday. Mm-hmm. That's off limits. And a Sunday occasionally... On a Sunday, I say we work about maybe a third of the available Sundays. So we got Saturday, Sunday most of the time and Friday evenings. And then during the days, it's obviously Rio's in school. Mm -hmm. Christiana's still at home. So we've got Christiana at home with us all day. Mm. Uh, He starts school next year. Um, And Rio, we sort of, well, we scheduled all of our classes so that we have a couple of hours from the time we pick him up from school to spend some downtime with him. Yeah, beautiful. And um, we just definitely, like, look, when that, I'll be honest, like, that didn't happen straight away. It was only the last couple of years that we're like, okay, I really, really have to make sure that this is a priority. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. because, I mean, you can justify it and say, look, I'm working so hard for the family, but I'm like, Mm. you know, there's time you just never get back. I just, just seeing him learn something new every day Mm. And for me, only to find out about it, like maybe a couple of weeks later, I was like, this is not acceptable. It has to, mm. has to change. We have to spend time mm. every day. Yeah. You, you, but now we spend every single waking hour. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right. Well, <laughs> this isn't a podcast about COVID, but, but I, I, I think we have to address the elephant in the room, which is a dance school is very contact. You are, you are physically in the same space and you are physically making contact with your dance partner. And uh, unless you're in one of the classes where you're, you're training with a specific person or you've come with a specific person so you don't swap, uh, most people are switching partners throughout the classes. Yes. This is obviously uh, completely unacceptable in, a, in, a, in the current COVID world. And obviously you're, you're not running classes, et cetera, right now. So no one, no one write in complaining, objecting that they shouldn't be doing <laughs> it. They're not doing it. But how do you pivot a business like this under these circumstances? What, what have you done? Have you just shut down? You're doing nothing or, or is there still something going on? Well, look, we have pivoted. We are doing some things, but I do want to say it is not what we've created the community and the business to have been mm. in the first place. I always used to say that, look, we aren't a dance school. We are a community and we are uh, more than a community. You know, we're, we're, we're in some cases the only friends and family that people have. Mm. And we just happen to do dancing. I, can I interject there? There was one year when I joined you because my family didn't have anything organized on Christmas Day. We do our Christmas on Boxing Day. I actually joined you. You organized a Christmas Day kind of relax at, uh, at someone's house for the students that you have, knowing that some of them had no family in Australia or some of them had no family at all. And so when you say that it really was all about the community first, I just want to echo that and say that you've, you've definitely lived that in practice in how you've actually 
lived your life and the, the sorts of priorities that you make, even at times like like Christmas. But anyway, I, I interject. Thank you. That's, that's one of the things we're proudest of. Yeah, definitely. So, sorry, you were talking about the pivot that you have made under these circumstances. Yeah, and so because we don't, well, because I don't view us as a dance school first, we are a community first. Mm. Um, we have to pivot in certain ways. So most dance schools, their solution has been to create online dance classes. Um, we have created that just so that we have that available for our students. Mm. Um, and look, for the most part, especially in the first lockdown, we ran those classes free of charge. We wanted to give the opportunity for people to dance because we knew some of the people have also been affected with job loss and especially mm. there's a lot of um, foreign people who don't have support. Yeah. There's a lot of people working in non, non, you know, jobs that haven't been able to keep them employed. And so we wanted to give something back in terms of that. And also just sort of like a little bit of something to brighten, brighten up the day. You know, mm. so we, we had, we had um, free online classes running during the first period. And, um, you know, look, I've, I never want to lose an opportunity to, to develop the business as well. So during that time, I actually used that opportunity to give most of those online classes to our trainee instructors to teach. Wow. This is a good chance for them to develop it and train mm -hmm. it and practice without the pressure of a live crowd in front of them. Yep. Uh, so it's kind of two birds with one stone for us. Um, and then we did have like a premium sort of paid online class available for people as well. And um, the support has been really good. Like mm. most people have, I, I honestly think most people have just signed up and paying because they want to support the dance school and the mm. business and the community. Mm. Um, and that's, because, that's the beauty uh, yeah. of investing in community is that in moments like this, that community values you enough to invest back in you. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, but look, I always ran, I'm a big sort of risk management kind of guy. I have no idea why, but uh, <laughs> it's just sort of just, I always, whenever I structure something, it's always risk management. And so we are one of the lucky few full-time studios who didn't have a lease that I had to continue paying and overheads yeah. I had to continue paying yeah. and full-time staff I had to continue paying. And so I have a lot of personal friends who run schools that way and they are in big trouble. Mm. And we were sort of able to just go, okay, if everything's on hold, we'll just pause everything. Anything mm. we decide to run can be run just because we want to contribute back and not because we have to generate a dollar. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the business over the years has been so good to us that we were able to invest in other things and have multiple income streams. And personally, well, our family's not in that position. I, I, I want to talk a little bit about that because this is something that, that I've known about you since I got to know you at the school. Uh, I remember the first time I went to your, you had a, a small studio in St Kilda, which was actually, um, I think initially it was where you lived and it was a, it was an area right at the front of that or, or what have you. At any rate, you had this area mm -hmm. uh, where you were able to teach uh, dancing in sort of smaller classes. And this was for the more, the more advanced students. And I, I went through that on my way to then becoming a, a bit of a teacher for a little while teaching the, the uh, some of the earlier students. But I walked in there for the first time and I remember the bookcase that was there just off to one side and noticing the books that were in there. And this was a, a very good selection of business books, marketing books, uh, systems type thinking books, um, money and investment type books. It was, it was all around that subject matter. And uh, I'm, I'm a cynical enough human being that I did actually have a bit of a closer look at a few of the books to make sure that they had actually been opened and they had actually been read. Uh, <laughs> and that you just weren't buying these books and sticking them on the shelf and thinking, oh, yeah, there you go. I'll get around to that. Uh, and they had been. And so you're someone who, who has invested. I mean, you said early on that you've, you've, you're sort of one of these, these lucky bastards uh, who, who finds things, <laughs> sort of you pick things up fairly easily. And, and I think that's evident in, in you know, so much of, of what you've done. But to your credit, you haven't taken that for granted. And you have actually then fed into that the information and the wisdom and, and learning from other people. Now, my understanding is that you're actually just pivoting at the moment in, or opening up a new type of project where you're actually looking at sharing some of that with other people. Now, I genuinely know very little about this. Uh, I've literally just seen it because we're friends on Facebook and I saw something pop up in my newsfeed at some stage. So tell me and through me, everyone else, what is it that you're actually moving into? Actually, there's two things. Uh, one of them is we didn't even discuss it even in our chat prior to this conversation. 
Uh, one of them is the thing you're referring to, and and one of them is actually a larger project that I'm actually more involved in. It's not larger; okay. it's something I'm more involved in than the first. Uh, but the thing you're referring to is around property education. Mm-hmm. Um, I am not a property expert whatsoever. And um, I actually view this as an advantage. I saw, okay, there's an advantage in this. I'm not a property expert. I am someone who's done um, multiple properties. Mm. And I was able to do that because I had a, a very good property mentor, someone who who um, guided me through the entire process mm. and who actually um, just, as it turned out, again, another fortuitous thing. Um, she was a superstar in the industry. Yeah. Uh, she was working for a large firm that did a lot of, um, you know, big time investor portfolios mm. and she broke off to do her own thing, start her own little boutique firm. And I was her f- first sort of real client. She wow. actually was one of my dance students. So, <laughs> okay. So that came about again, fortuitously. And so she, she guided me through the process. Um, again, the business had been, had done well enough for us to be looking at investing in property is not an easy thing. Mm. Um, but it's definitely something that most people who I think most people who encounter this thought in their mind, like they want to get into property, never end up doing it. And it, I it's think intimidating it's kind of like, and it's a, it's a high price of entry. I'll, I'll say that it's that the whole getting the deposit together, dealing with all the paperwork and oh. all that stuff. It's a mysterious process. It's an expensive process. And if you get it wrong, it can hurt you for a decade. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for all those reasons you said, but also for the reason that most people just don't even know where to start. Mm. It's like, okay, I want to get into property, but there's so many different people out there selling properties, different types of properties, different mm-hmm. things that you can get into that it's, it's just dizzying. And a lot of the times it comes down to just glossary. A lot of the times it just comes down to like, I have no idea what that person is saying. Yeah. Therefore I don't, I'm not learning it. I've switched off mentally. Yeah, there's not this other language that they're speaking. Exactly. Mm. And so that's what my vision for this. Look, I was approached by her after she had done multiple properties for us. Um, when COVID happened, she said, look, why don't you help me create this platform? I really want to do this educational platform. Mm. And for her, it's her firm. It's a really good sort of educational tool to get to get people to eventually buy property from her. Sure. Um, it, it, me, it is a lead magnet. Yeah, exactly. Lead magnet. Exactly right. That's exactly what it is. Uh, but for me, I was like, look, I'm not a property expert. I'm never going to, I'm not going to pretend to be one, but I saw the advantage in going, okay, well then I can relate or I can be more relatable to the people who, who haven't made that first step. Yeah. And I can talk to them. And this is something that we prided ourselves doing in the dance school mm. is talking to people who have never danced before, like they have never danced before. Mm. Don't talk to them like they're supposed to know what you're talking about. Mm. And so I'm like, well, why don't we just take the same principles and apply it here? And that's what we're working on doing. If you hadn't made that point, that that is a continuation of what you were doing at the school, I was actually going to chime in and make that point, um, that really this this makes perfect sense. Now that you're kind of explaining it to me, this makes makes perfect sense because that is exactly what you've done, demystifying things that I I know for me when I walked into the, the dance school was incredibly intimidating. Uh, and yet I felt just so easy, easily welcomed in and um, never judged for the fact that I just had <laughs> literally no idea what I was doing. So if you can bring that to financial education, which is just such an, I, I, I've, I, I've been on the periphery of some other financial education groups, particularly in my late teen years and early 20s. And the amount of ego driven nonsense that Ooh. there is in that space is horrifying and the amount of people that are giving bad advice and they know it's bad advice but they either don't care because there are there are vested financial interests that that can happen or they don't care because what they're saying makes them sound good and it gets them a bigger audience it's just really really depressing so if you can bring something different to that space i i would be very very happy to see it well that's exactly what we're exploring you know mm. i mean it's Again, it's, it's definitely, it's, it's in the early stages and it's in the works. Now but, you said um, there was a second yeah. thing. Yeah, it's actually something I am very personally passionate about what I'm doing. And it is in the current industry that I'm in. And I have genuinely um, no idea what you're about to say. <laughs> well, it's actually not that, that fancy. But what it is, is over the last few years, as we reached a certain level of success in our business, um, I was approached by number of different dance school directors in in other states and Mm. other countries asking me to coach them through running their school wow and so at the time you know i was just doing it because uh 
you know, I wanted to pass a little bit of knowledge, but also I enjoyed it as well. And it actually helped me generate ideas in my head when I'm talking through something with someone, mm. I would get ideas for myself as well. Um, and then we also were able to get some really, really good contacts in the industry. We're able to work with some of the top talent because we coach yeah. them on how to run their businesses. Yeah. And some of the top schools who, who operate here in, in Australia um, are schools that we've directly and indirectly worked with and coached with in their structure and how they market and how they mm -hmm. retain students, mm -hmm. how they build the community that we've been able to build as well. Um, and so when COVID happened, I, I was looking into, you know, those books and stuff that you mentioned, mm -hmm. I, I haven't mm -hmm. bought a new book for a long time. I do audio books now. Okay. Well, my audio book library is crazy, crazy, crazy. <laughs> and I listen to books multiple, multiple times and I stumbled across something around digital education, mm -hmm. um, which I was looking into at the time for the property thing. Yep. But then I thought, hang on, is there anyone out there who's doing some proper education for people who are running dance schools in yeah, how right. to run a dance school like a proper dance school and a business like a proper business? Mm. And there's nothing really out there. There's a couple of groups doing it, but nothing, especially nothing particularly in the Latin dance industry. Scene. And we have mm. hundreds of, yeah, we have hundreds of, dance schools around the world um you know if not thousands of dance teachers salsa dance teachers who are sort of running little operations here and there just trying to make ends meet you know working day jobs in the meantime and it just occurs to me that it's because they don't have the education and the skills around mm. actually running something sustainable and so um, we're creating a digital product around that, just some training, maybe try and create a community of um, dance school owners, salsa dance school owners, mm. so we can sort of share better practices amongst each other um, and also just create a best practices around it and also a suite of, of systems that they can use and implement in their own schools in their own local areas to grow into what can hopefully be sustainable businesses because sustainable businesses will also generate more opportunities for the next talent coming up. Absolutely. Will also help, like if, if, if they're able to replicate what we do here, I know that for a fact that majority of the dance schools here in Melbourne, the smaller dance schools subsist off students that we created from scratch. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't annoy me. A lot of people thought, ask me, you know, does that annoy you that so many of your students are at other schools? And I'm like, that's something I'm actually very proud of. Mm -hmm. Like we've actually helped sustain this community. So the community industry wouldn't exist in Melbourne, I believe, the way that it exists mm. if we weren't there generating and pushing new blood into the scene. And can I say, I've got a huge smile on my face right now because uh, you, you've told us all about how you came into the industry for the, uh, with the focus on doing the opposite of what everyone else was doing. You made sacrifices along the way that caused some people to, to look down on you. You're not trying to compete. Maybe you're not that great, et cetera, et cetera. And now to hear that the industry has kind of woken up and now they're coming to you saying, oh, so exactly what have you done? Please, please fill us in. Um, it's just a beautiful, it's just delicious to me. Um, and, and it really is, I, th I think it, it very much vindicates why I, I was so keen to get you onto this podcast, all about bringing value. And you've clearly brought value financially to your own family through the, the Salsa Foundation, but obviously through everything else you've done. Uh, building a community, uh, 10 out of 10, I, I, was, uh, I had the privilege of being a part of that community for a number of years. And every chance I, I get, I do stick my head back into sort of Christmas party or you know, annual parties, birthday parties, et cetera, for the school. Uh, and I love it every time I stick my head back in there. But then also in the area of ideas and business ideas and how you run a business, this is a, a, an area of ideas that is just so important. And you, you've kind of, you are the triple threat. You've, you've brought amazing value in all three of those areas. And I just want to thank you so much for the time that you've given to this podcast, sharing your ideas and all of that with us. But I do want to give you one last chance to close out. What would you say to someone who might be a younger version of yourself, who, who is a little bit um, unsure that they might have a lot of options, a lot of possibilities. There, there are a lot of different directions you could go these days with with business with how you earn money how you where you live etc the, the world is a very small place and a very open place compared to what it has been what advice if any would you give to someone sitting in that situation maybe as a 20 year old wondering what to do honestly it's it's a piece of advice that i sort of i've held really close to me for a while uh, i was taught this early early on again by some mentors that i was you know, very fortunate to have 
and it is around the key word that you've you've brought up time and again and, and that you told me that this podcast is about mm. it really is about the value that you bring and you know it, I, I think it's a very well-known sort of uh, maxim in business mm-hmm. that it's mm-hmm. like the the amount of or if you got if you want to if you're interested in profit the amount of profit you have is a direct result of mm-hmm. the amount of value that you bring to yes. a marketplace yes yeah and it, it doesn't need necessarily specify what form that value needs to be in. and it can be in many many different forms but you need to create that value in order to to uh to generate that reward for yourself mm. and for your family mm. and so for me it was always like how do we impact the most because look you can Im- try and impact you can try and impact a handful of people as far as possible mm-hmm. or you can try and impact as many people as you can just a little bit mm. You know, and neither of those is right or wrong. You know, either of those is a very admirable way to do it. Mm-hmm. For me, it was like, I'm going to try and impact as many people as possible in a little bit, in a little way. Yeah. And they'll find the way, the, the rest of the way themselves. Uh, and for my, you know, if I had to, if I had to um, give some advice to someone who was just starting off in something, whether it's dance or whether it's something completely unrelated to dance, mm. for me personally, and this just fits with me, I would say introduce it, find a way to lower the bar, lower the barrier to entry mm. and find a way to make it relatable to more people. Because mm. the more you can, the more you can do that, just the, the possibilities are endless. I, I sort of look back and again, I know this is a bit of a longer answer, but uh, I draw my inspiration from the computer industry. Things get more and more technical in the back end Mm. or more and more user-friendly in the front end. And if it never got user-friendly in the front end, it would have never had the opportunity to grow so technical in the back end. Mm. Yeah, the front end came first. The the making it user-friendly, the lowering the barrier to entry. So for me, it is share it to as many people as you can. And oftentimes your specialist route will will emerge from that. Oh, you, you're hitting me where I live there. Um, it's not something that I plan to talk about on the podcast, but drive go-karting is a business that I've been working on for some years. And we, we look like we are going to be open next year. And the whole business model is built around lowering the barrier to the entry into motorsport. Uh, mm-hmm. So I, it's interesting. I, I, I didn't know that that's what you were going to say, but um, it is very much a, a vindication of validation of, of the whole philosophy behind that business as well. Well, Jay Villa Gonzalo, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. This has been a, a really enjoyable chat for me, a bit of a blast from the past to catch up with you a little bit. And I, I'm really, really grateful. And I know that our listeners will have gotten tremendous value. There's that word again, uh, out of listing. So thank you so much. Pleasure. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for joining me for the very first episode of the Living Value Podcast. I hope you've had as much fun as what I've had talking to Jay, hearing about the Salsa Foundation and all of the other things that he's involved in. I'll put some links into the description under this podcast so that you can find the Salsa Foundation and also keep track of Jay and see what he's doing next with his financial education and his property education. And also... If you like what you've heard, and if you'd like me to be able to continue making more of these podcasts, the Living Value Podcast, then please support me by going to toferfield.locals.com. That's T-O-P-H-E-R-F-I-E-L-D.locals.com. It's like a Patreon, but without the deplatforming and all the political correctness. Join the Topherfield Locals community and help me to be able to create more content like this and interview more interesting people who are bringing living value.